We are going to be delving into Revelation chapter 13 this morning. Uh, before we do that, just a little reminder of we started this chapter last week and we said there is, there is a good sense that there is a pattern here uh, that is being followed of, of mimicry, of mockery, uh, uh, in a sense, of uh, the doctrine uh, or, the, or, or the God of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here in this particular chapter in Revelation, we find basically three persons of the Antichrist of the Anti-Trinity. First of all, the red dragon, the great red dragon, and then the first beast who arises out of the sea, which we talked about quite a bit last week. And then there's another beast coming that is going to raise up out of the earth. There have been a lot of things speculated about the book of Revelation over the years. We all understand that. Uh, there have been, there's been so much talk in every generation of, uh, in regard to this beast in particular. There have been all kinds of conclusions drawn. Uh, people have been identified down through history. Uh, you can imagine in the first century... Uh, that some of the Roman emperors who were very much responsible for very great persecution of the church, that there were probably believers in their day who believed that maybe this is this particular being that is called the beast in Revelation. Now, let me just say, there's not just one beast, there's two beasts. So some of this stuff doesn't really hold a whole lot of water. Uh, but in every generation, you've seen the same thing kind of take place. Even in modern days, you've seen people try to make a connection between the beast and, and particularly wicked, evil people that we've seen down through the generations. Uh, we know that there were some people who were speculating the beast was Adolf Hitler and maybe some Joseph Stalin, uh, Mao Zedong, if you happen to be Chinese. Uh, in Uganda, there were, there were many Christian brothers and sisters in the 70s and 80s who believed with all their heart that Idi Amin must be this beast. Well, let me tell you, no one knows. <laughs> you know, no one can, can answer the question. And I, what I would say to us this morning, we need to be challenged with this, and that is the idea, is, uh, is, what's being, is what being depicted here, is it? Specific historical individuals that who would occupy or, or have these names granted to them or given to them, or really are there there are more principles that will take place during the time between the ascension of Christ into heaven and his second coming? And I would opt to, to be probably the second. That very often, I think the evil one is in the works here. And what he's doing, he's preoccupying people with trying to figure this out and figure that out. And very often going down endless 
mindless sometimes, rabbit trails that lead to no end, that lead to no good. But in the end, lots of people are convinced that this is this and that and that is that, and we really don't have much ground for it. Another thing that people have done is this, is they make a direct association between the first beast and the man of lawlessness that the apostle Paul mentions in chapter 2 of first Th- or Second Thessalonians. Let me read it for you. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. What was going on in Thessalonica is this, is people were convinced that Jesus was right there. He was, that the day was coming any day now. There were actually people in Thessalonica who believed that Jesus had come already. We see these things reflected in the letters uh, of Paul to the various churches. He mentions this man of lawlessness. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. So there are people who believe this. But what Paul is saying here to the Thessalonians is this, is put on, cool your jets, guys. Put on the brakes. Certain things have to take place before the Lord comes back, and one of those is the man of lawlessness has to be revealed. Now let me tell you something. It could be an allusion to the wicked one himself. But let me tell you, there is no place in Scripture that makes a direct connection between the beast and the man of lawlessness. It doesn't exist. It's an assumption that people go by. So my my advice to you is to be careful about the conclusions that you come to. Because people are always coming to conclusions. And sometimes maybe they are well-founded and sometimes they just quite frankly are not. But the next thing you know, there's a whole bunch of people believing that it's basically what Scripture teaches. When in fact it doesn't hold up to the weight of Scripture. One of the things I hope you realize is this, is there are a lot of things about the end times, the times coming, that we can know. But at the same time, it is still clothed in mystery, and we need to be comfortable with that. We don't have to have answers to every single question that we have. I know some of you feel that way. That's basically the way you approach life. If you have a question, you have to find the answer to it. Now, we need to understand that when it comes to things like this, God has purposely clothed them in mystery, and we must be satisfied with it being there. You know, I don't want to be too simplistic about this, but but if we remember the words of Jesus in regard to these things, we will do fine. And his words are these. Be ready, because it could be any time. If we know that, if we live that, if we practice that, 
We don't need to know any more detail. The question is always this, are we ready for Jesus to come? Not 10,000 years from now, not next week, not tomorrow, but right now, where we're at. That is the most important message that we can get from all of the end times teaching and thinking and opinions made. And not only that, Jesus makes it very clear that when he comes, it's going to be when people don't expect him to come. He's going to come like a thief in the night when people don't expect him to appear. So, let me just say this. Because there's so many people out there that are convinced that Jesus is coming in our day, it might be a a little piece of evidence for you and I that he probably isn't. Okay, with all that said, we're going to jump into chapter 13. And we've already gone through the first eight verses of this, and we're going to just read back through it because it all brings it all together. And he stood on the sand of the seashore. That's the dragon. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten, uh, ten horns and seven heads, and his horns were ten diadems, and on the heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave... Uh, him, his power, and his throne, and great authority. And some of the, the things that we noted last week was uh, this, that there's a remarkable likeness between this beast and the great red dragon. Very much similar to one another in their appearance. They are horrific-looking monsters that would, would wreak fear in the hearts of people who just looked upon them. And it's true for both of them. We also said this, that there seems to be some sense that, uh, uh, that this beast is a, uh, a, a mockery of, of the Trinity, uh, in, in particular of the Son of God, uh, because we see some overlapping here or similar things taking place between uh, the evil one and the dragon that we see take place between the father and the son. And, and one of those is that all of their power and their throne and, their is, and authority is given. Satan gives these to the, to the beast. The father gives these to Jesus Christ, the son of God. And I saw one of the, the heads as if it had been slain. Uh, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? And it was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him, And again, we see this same time period expressed in different units over and over again. 1,260 days, 3.5 years, 42 months, times time and half a time, all seem to, to refer to the same time period. 
just expressed in different ways. And what I would say is probably the most likely candidate for what period of time that is, it's sort of reference to the time between the ascension of Christ into heaven and the second coming of Jesus, symbolic of that particular time frame. Not that it's going to be exactly 1260 days. We know that's not true, right? He opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name in his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So he's screaming blasphemies out at the heavenly hosts. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every tribe, people, and tongue, and nation was given to him. He is an instrument of, of Satan that is used to persecute the church of Jesus Christ. And all who dwell on earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. So everyone who is an unbeliever, in essence, will be a worshiper of the beast. And because they worship the beast, they worship, in essence, his father, Satan. This is a distinction that we've seen made all the way through the book of Revelation over and over again. There is a division laid down time after time. And it's distinction made between those who are the people of God and those who are not the people of God. That is going to be sustained through the whole book. And it's only near the, at the end of the book that the division is finally brought to complete and absolute fruition. Where those who are not the people of God, who do not have the seal of God upon their forehead, the name of the Father and the Son on their forehead, they will be cast into the lake of fire with Satan and everyone else. At the same time, those whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life since the very beginning of time, those who have the seal of God on their forehead, the name of the Father and of the Son, they will inherit the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, the paradise that we've already alluded to a little bit this morning. God's established eternal kingdom that will have no end. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And if anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with a sword, with a sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb. And he spoke as a dragon. And he exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed, and he performs great signs so that uh, he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. He deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs uh, which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. There was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, and 
the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is six hundred and sixty-six. So verse 11, another beast, the third being or whatever of this anti-Trinitarian picture. He comes up out of the earth. Uh, Just remember that the, the appearance of the great red dragon and the appearance of the first beast who came up out of the sea was just terrifying. Horrific. Notice here the appearance of this beast. There's a sense of gentleness to him, and you can see reflected in this very clearly because he's likened to being a lamb. Now, does that sound familiar at all? Don't you remember back in chapter 5? In this book of Revelation, that Jesus, when he made his first appearance in the heavenly places, he, he appeared there as a lamb that had been slain. So you see the, the mimicry, the mockery that is going on here in this second beast of even Christ himself. He looks... Like a lamb. But he speaks like a dragon. See, the first beast evokes fear in people and how he looks. The second, not in how he looks, his looks are deceiving, but in what he says. In other places in this book, he is referred to as the false prophet. The one who claims to speak on God's behalf, but does nothing but but gives falsities. Falsities that are designed to lead people astray. He exercises all authority. He makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beasts. There's almost a likeness here of the Holy Spirit. What I mean by that is if you look at Scripture, the Holy Spirit doesn't really at all shine the spotlight on himself, that it's his, it's his responsibility, his job, his overall job, all overarching job is to shine the light on Jesus, that people would come and they would bow before Jesus and they would worship him. And you see the second beast here doing the same thing in regard to the first beast. 
By deceptive words, he is encouraging them and misleading them to worship this false god. That's ultimately, that's what we're talking about. Let's talk about worship for just a few minutes. Worship, worship is something that only God is due. Period. No other being is worthy of worship. It is that which Satan wants most to steal away from him. Satan desires, Satan wishes to be worshipped as if he were God. He wants to take away from God that which is only God's. And you see that reflected over and over again in, in the things that we're reading here in this book of Revelation. He's the great deceiver. It seems as though he's, all, he's even deceived himself. Have people been worshiping false gods from the very beginning of time, pretty much? We see it happen over and over and over again. You think about the Old Testament, one of the most surprising things is when the the Israelites came out of Egypt, they were delivered by God out of Egypt on eagles, as if on eagles' wings, like we talked about last week. Brought out with a mighty hand, brought out with a strong arm of God. And And the crazy thing is this, is when they came, they brought their Egyptian idols right along with them, and they continued in that worship of these false gods. We know that once they got into the land, the same thing continued. Into the days of the judges. By the end of the days of the judges, Israel was apostate as it could possibly get. It's like they've given up on God completely. And they worship the gods of the land. They become like the people they displaced. Maybe, well, in a sense, even worse. Because at one time they knew what the truth was. The truth had been revealed to them. Once Israel became a kingdom, the same pattern over and over again, not just when the division took place in Israel, it was apostate, it could be from day one, the northern kingdom. The kings were... If there were many scripture talking about beasts at that point, I would imagine a good number of the kings of Israel would have fit the picture according to most people's understanding. People who were supposedly leading the people of God's chosen people, wicked, evil, terrible. Idolatry has been something that people have struggled with all along. And it's something that you and I need to be struggling with too. Because there's all kinds of false gods. There are all kinds of false things that would capture our hearts. And our hearts belong to him and to him only. It is human nature or it is human sinful nature. To follow after idols and images 
and to give to them that which only God should have. Worship. I mean, how many people out there today do you know of that are out there basically worshiping things? They want this, they want that, they want lots of money, they want all the things that money can buy them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They, they expend all of their energy, they expend their whole lifetime trying to gather those things around them. And maybe by the end, some of them finally realize that they have wasted their entire life chasing after idols and images that amount to nothing. We are called to be different, to acknowledge and understand that God is the central thing to all things. He is the one who has our worship. He is the one who has our hearts. He is the focus. He is the central thing to everything else. He stands above friends, family, possessions, anything and everything. That is his rightful place for every one of us. And he will not settle until that is reality. That we're learning this lesson as we go through life now, but one of these days we will know, we will understand what it means that God is the center of all things. And we will worship him with fullness and heart and soul and mind and strength in ways that we can't even imagine now. Worship will never be dull for us. It is what we're destined to do. And we will love it. As much as we do it, we'll never have enough. Expressing our thanksgiving and our joy in the greatness and the fullness of our God. And knowing and understanding how abundant his love is for people like us. Verse 10, if anyone is destined to captivity, to captivity, he goes, people ask questions, well, what does this mean? Well, what I would say to you, it means is this. That God actually destines some of his people to captivity. And God even destines some of his people to death. I mean, God is in control or he's not in control, Right? Have you ever heard the phrase that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church? Have you ever heard that phrase before? If you haven't, shame on me. Because there have been martyrs in every single generation that God is destined to give their lives for the goodness and the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ into this dark, godless world apart from him. He has always prepared them. The martyrs do not go to death kicking and screaming and begging for life. They go willingly, almost desiringly, because God has prepared them for it. 
How many people have spent time in prison simply for being a Christian? My friends, God has not promised any of us an easy life. That verse does not appear in Scripture anywhere. What the Bible says is this. God does promise us something. Actually, a number of things, but one of those things is this. Is we will have tribulation. We will have difficulty. We will have strife. We will be persecuted. That's his promise to us. He does make another promise. And that is that he will never leave us. That even in the midst of all of that, he will be right there. He will be, he will be bearing us up. How many people do you think have been won to the faith because they have witnessed one of these martyrs give their life willingly for their Lord? Can you think of a message that would hit you know, the deepness of the blackened hearts of people in a way any stronger than that? The only conclusion you could come to in regard to that person is either they are absolutely insane, they have lost their mind, or they know something, they know someone that I don't. It all comes down to perseverance. The second beast comes up out of the earth. And we've already described his likeness, that of a lamb, and he speaks like a dragon. He exercises all of the authority of the first beast. So, so the red dragon gave his authority to the first beast. And now the first beast gives his authority to the second beast. And he has a purpose. And his purpose in life and existence is to make the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. To lead them away into false worship. And how does he do it? He does it through his words of deception. First beast could, might be called the great destroyer. The second beast ought to be titled the great deceiver. The one with a flowery tongue who leads people astray in what he says. He also performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven. Now, let me ask you something. If you saw a person, you witnessed a person call fire down from heaven and it came, would that impress you? It happened in the Bible. Elijah did it at least two occasions, more than two occasions. The first one. On Mount Carmel, where he called down fire from God to come, and it burned up not only the sacrifice, but the altar, and in all the water and everything. The second time, 
when King Ahaziah sent his captains in their 50s to arrest Elijah. He called down heaven. He called down fire from heaven two times. And it consumed the captains in their 50s twice. Finally, when the third one came, he came with a bit of humility. So that was not his end. And Elijah went and appeared before the king. And we hear things like this, and they're, they're so far back in history that, that it's hard to even relate to some of the things that have gone on. But we do know this, that if we, we came across someone and they were able to call fire down from heaven that we would take notice of it, and it would be very impressive. Just remember this, Satan has no power of, him, of his own. He really has none. He has only what God allows him. The same thing is true of the first beast, the same thing is true of the second beast. That in essence, they believe that they are in control of things, but in essence, they ultimately are pawns being used by the Almighty to bring about his perfect will and purpose. Which is very hard for us to wrap our hands ar heads around, very hard for us to understand. I was thinking the other day about this. I've contemplated this a lot. I actually watched a couple of lectures this week on, you know, where did the, the question, where did evil come from? And no one really has the answer. But the first appearance of evil that we know of is when Satan and, and some of the angels rebelled against God in heaven. We understand that. And they were cast down to earth, and when they came, they brought their wickedness and evilness with them. But I really think that this may be the answer to our question. Uh, and that is this premise. And the premise is this, is that God and God only is perfectly good. Therefore, to be perfectly good, you must be God. What I'm saying here is almost as if it's inevitable over enough time. That even the best amongst created beings will eventually do evil things. Now we know this. We know in the new heaven and the new earth that we won't do evil anymore. But it's not because of some inherent power that we have. Or ability. It's because of God's power. He will keep us pure. He will keep us holy. But even then, we will be like him in ways. Scripture teaches us that, but we will never be God. We will never be perfect in the same sense that God is perfect. But God will sustain us. Through eternity in holiness and in perfection.
I know I haven't covered many verses this morning. <laughs> I can tell you guys, it is it's so hard to work through all these details every week because this book is filled with all kinds of puzzle pieces and and etc. And it is it is not easy to work through things and and try to come up with what seem to be reasonable explanations of things without going too far, but at the same time going far enough. I've had a number of people tell me how much they're enjoying this study of Revelation. And let me tell you, I'll be honest with you, I haven't enjoyed doing anything so much as this in a very long time. But it is hard work. It is. And it ought to be. Because it moves us and stirs us. The more we know, the more we want to know. Right? I don't know about you, but I there, there, there were a lot of times when I just tried to avoid Revelation. I've done kind of a couple of Bible studies through Revelation a few times, but it's not because I felt compelled to do it. Not that I wanted to do it. Not that I felt very prepared to do it. Not that I felt very capable of doing it. But we've done it. And we need to do it. It's important. Very important. So we'll stop there and pick up next week. Didn't get very far. But if you've been here very long, you're kind of used to that. (laughs)